0: I'm Doug Stewart, your host, and with me today is David Bernstein. He is the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, which supports viewpoint diversity, counters woke ideology in the Jewish community, and opposes novel forms of antisemitism emerging from said woke ideology. He is the author of the book, Woke Antisemitism, How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews. This is going to be the topic of our conversation. David, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. Yeah, so I wanted to have you on because this intersects in a number of ways with a lot of what's happening in the news, whether people kind of realize it or not. It also intersects with, well, two things I should say that are happening in the news. One is anti-Semitism. And oftentimes when you hear about anti-Semitism, it is very much uh, sort of alt-right, right-wing phenomenon that a lot of people talk about. And then there's also the woke stuff, which is all of the more left-wing related things. And so when you put these things together, it's like, wait, what's going on here? And so I'm of interest for a bunch of reasons, both personal, professional, and intellectual. And so you seem like the perfect guest to talk to me about this. And you literally wrote the book on these two things. So I picked up your book thinking that you would be writing this about how you have woke on one side and you have the Jewish community on the other. And they were sort of in this like battle between each other. And I quickly realized that, no, you're writing a book that describes how, in some ways, this has infiltrated the Jewish community and Jewish organizations that are involved in social justice. Mm-hmm. As we get into this, I think it would be helpful for everybody to know as a guest, what is your political leanings? Like, where, how would you describe yourself on the political spectrum? Mm. Yeah,
1: I think I would have probably described myself as center left on many social policies and the like. Um, Pro-choice. I support immigrants and immigrant rights. I'm for reasonable criminal justice reform. I'm for separation of church and state. I'm certainly a civil libertarian. And in much of my adult life, the civil liberties aspect of my political orientation and the political liberalism that you might describe as pro-choice and the like, those two things were one and the same, but became disjoined, I think. Mm -hmm as we got closer and closer to where we are nay, I started to sense that many of my liberal friends or progressive friends were not civil libertarians. They didn't particularly value free speech anymore. Many of them thought that yeah. hate speech should be banned. And I realized I was no longer singing from the same song, sheet.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of this took a lot of us by surprise, especially me. I mean, I would start ar- arguing with, because I'm not, I would say I'm we're more of classical liberal I mean we are libertarian right I mean there's some overlap there of course and we certainly right. believe in free speech and freedom of expression so I mean that's probably the connecting point for this conversation mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you'd think that you'd have a conversation with somebody who's on the left and you'd think they assume that free speech and free expression were valuable things and that open debate and even rigorous debate and lots of heated arguments in the public square were acceptable. And that doesn't seem, <laughs> they took a lot of us, I think, by surprise that yeah. we found there were a lot of people that were like, well, no, we can't say that.
1: Yeah. I started to see this more than 20 years ago. I mean, I saw it in college, which is even longer ago than that, there was already this sort of early version, what you might call political correctness. Mm. But in the professional world, in the Jewish advocacy world where I was, I started to hear arguments that racism equals courageous plus power. And I thought to myself, wow, that's interesting. So that means that a supposed powerful group like American Jews can't be victims. And that means that a supposed victim group can't be racist or anti-Semitic. And I thought that was inherently problematic. And when I argued back with the person who first said it, they said, no, that's the way it is. That's the definition of racism. And I thought, okay, so not only are you imposing a new definition, but you're not even discussing it. So I started to feel that things were going awry and there were other things that occurred too. I started to hear that same rhetoric among the the civil rights groups that I was working with that were formerly sort of in the America is a great but flawed country camp, mm-hmm. where now America is a pervasively racist country or a supremacist country. And I picked up that in the early 2000s and wrote about it. I mean, it wasn't that I just entertained this, but I wrote to my colleagues I wrote an article about my concerns here. And unfortunately, I turned out to be right that this ideology could catch on It did catch on and became the dominant framework for many people. Yeah,
0: I mean, in reading your book and the stories that you told about that era of your life and even before, I was struck and very impressed by the fact that you were not sort of sticking to your guns on one side of things. Like you were willing to kind of go along for the sake of maybe you could say progress. when I say go along, maybe you can describe that a little bit differently. But you seem to be amenable to adjusting and adapting to people's like thoughts about what it means to be diverse. But you just kept bumping up against, well, wait, that doesn't make any sense. Like you weren't yeah. just like an adamant hardcore, no, we can't do that, you know, sort of, I would say, right-winger kind of anti-CRT attitude. You were no, a lot more humble about it.
1: No, not at all. You know, I saw these folks as people that were potential friends and friends, and I wanted to, you know, I worked for Jewish organizations, so I wanted to influence their thinking about Jews and about Israel. And so that meant that I was going to be in partnership. And I agreed with them on many issues. Like, I agreed with people that the criminal justice system was broken and mass incarceration was not a good thing and that we need to make adjustments. And so I wanted to find ways of working with them. It was only when people started to invoke ideological litmus tests and you could no longer easily do joint work on criminal justice where you had to profess to support this idea that America was a white supremacist state that yeah. I became adamantly opposed to it. At that point, I wasn't willing to tell lies. I was willing to work with you to a different orientation, but once you insisted on your way or the highway, then that was the highway.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. As we progress in this conversation, I think it'd be helpful for us to kind of understand what is your sort of working definition with what it means to be woke?
1: Yeah, so to me, woke means two things. One is this observation that racism and oppression and bias are not just a matter of one's individual attitude, but they're embedded in the very systems and structures of society. They're in the air that we breathe. A second observation or second tenet of wokeism is that only the people who have experienced that oppression are qualified to define it for the rest of society. So we should listen to them because they're the ones who have experienced it. They get to tell us what it is. Now, both of those things have sort of elements of truth to them, in my view. In other words, it can be true that there is oppression embedded in the very structures of society. I think anybody would be hard-pressed to say that America in the 1950s under Jim Crow wasn't a racist society where I think there was systemic racism. In America, and there, there, arguably still is in certain aspects of American life, but it's not always the case. And to assume that that's the dominant explanation for everything, I think, is off base. The second tenet that people who have experienced oppression are qualified to fight for the rest of society—well, you know, listen, we should listen to people who have experienced bad stuff. As a Jew who's experienced anti-Semitism, I might have something to say about it that you should hear, but I don't have unmitigated right to define it for the rest of society. Mm. And there are Jews who have different experiences than me, and you should listen to them too. And it's also the case that there's other data points besides lived experience. So when a Pew survey came out with a poll that said that Jews are the most admired religious community in America, I have to take that seriously as well. So it's not that the woke ideological framework never has anything useful to say, It's that it it insists on it's sort of a monopoly on the discussion. That's where it becomes problematic.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah. So you wrote a book. I mean, it was published in 2022. So it's relatively new. It is. But it seems like the seeds of the need to write this book is almost decades old at this point, as you've sort of alluded. Where did that all kind of start for you?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I've been in this Jewish advocacy world. I've been in the center left space for my entire career. So I've been watching it happen. But it was getting out of the end of probably like 2016 or so. I just started Mm. to think, well, we're no longer able to engage effectively with the left unless we're willing to sign on to all of their political platforms. And this is really problematic. And, And I remember it was really actually before George Floyd when two Jewish demographers, one of whom I'm friendly with, were called out by other members of the Jewish community for questioning the number of Jews of color in the Jewish community. They thought the Mm. survey that had been taken was flawed in its methodology. And they said so. And they said, you know, we can do more to be an inclusive community, but these numbers are great based on everything we know. And there was a petition drive. So we're calling them racists. And the leader of one of the major Jewish denominations accused them of white intellectualism. And I thought that was just unbelievable. Like, and it was a corruption of Jewish values. There's this phrase in Judaism, "machloket L'shem Shemaim, arguments for the sake of Avid. And that's really core to who we are as Jews. We argue about ideas. It's The Talmud is a set of layered arguments by rabbis about Jewish ethics and Jewish law and so forth. So that's integral to who we are. And the idea that there'll be people who say, I know the answer. And anybody who even questions the numbers of Jews from a certain category, is no longer part of the conversation, to me, is really flirting with disaster. And of course, then you had George Floyd, which was a real tipping point. And all of a sudden, the people who were pushing for really radical agendas had the upper hand. And they used that to sort of ram down the throats of many others and many Jewish institutions, this one-size-fits-all worldview. And I think at that point, it was just a matter of time before I had to get out.
0: What do you make of some of the assessments out there by some scholars that there is a sort of Marxist and maybe Hegelian undercurrent with all of the woke movement, at least in the terms of strategy?
1: Yeah, so um, I think the Marxism um, analogy works to a degree in that it is an oppressor-oppressed binary. It's a American philosophy that holds that there are oppressors and oppressed, and in that way, it, it grows out of Marxism. Mm -hmm. But it's not about class, so it's not Marxism. That's why there are many Marxists who despise woke ideology. So I don't think it's the right framework to call it Marxist, even though it grows out of Marxism. The people who pushed this in the late 1960s in what's sometimes referred to as the long march through institutions Mm -hmm. were people who, again, were sort of Marxist orientation, but their fundamental fight was on race and and ethnicity, not class. So I think it's not proper to call it Marxist, but it's certainly related to Marxism.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah, I wanted to get your take on that because I think there's a lot of, I don't know what the word is. I guess it's just like an easy out for somebody, say, on the right, like, say, a Lindsey Graham or, gosh, the governor of Florida. I can't remember his name. DeSantis. Uh, Ron DeSantis. Yeah, like, call it, you know, just sort of shouting out and saying, oh, well, they're teaching this Marxism in schools or whatever. And it's sort of a singular phrase that's just supposed to turn off half of America or the people that they're wanting to vote for them, right? And it seems a little bit too easy to kind of go to just that term. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I think there's probably some connections there that are worth exploring. Sure. Like you mentioned, like some of these people were actually Marxists and sort of converted their agenda. I haven't read enough on critical theory to know which Marxists and what kind of Marxists are actually against it. That's interesting that you pointed that out. I'm going to kind of switch to a new question here. Back, uh, gosh, 15 years ago, my wife was in doctoral school. And one of the classes that she had to take was... I don't remember the name of the class, but it was a DEI type class, right? Mm -hmm. It was basically, you know, how do you... Inclusivity, racism, all of those kinds of things. And the professor was black, female. And there was a Jewish student in her class. And inevitably, the Jewish student had to bring up the fact that he did not identify as white. And she was like, no, you're white. (laughs) And there was just like no discussion whatsoever. Now, this is 15 years. Yeah, I'm trying to think about this. Somewhere between 10 and 15 years ago. I don't know exactly when she took the class, but that's roughly the time frame. And my wife and I, after the class, I wasn't in the class. She was explaining all this to me. We were talking about this, and I'm like, man, if there's, any, if there's any group of people that have a claim to oppression over possibly a longer period of time, or an incredibly long period of time, it would be the Jews. And so that really, it kind of bothered me. Mm-hmm. And you talk about this a little bit in your book with this concept of Jewish privilege. And it's sort of a catch-22 for Jews because many of them don't consider themselves white, but many on the left do consider them white because they're in positions of power or they think they're in positions of power or they have some sort of privilege? I don't know. Maybe you can obviously elaborate a little bit more on that. Why is it that Jews aren't really a persecuted minority in the rubric of the left?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. My colleague, Pamela Pareski, likes to say that when whiteness was considered a moral good, Jews weren't white. When whiteness is considered an unmitigated moral evil, then Jews are white. So we've always been in this catch-22. And, you know, Whoopi Goldberg recently called the Holocaust white on white crime. But it, what's interesting is that she believes that her conception of race, this her American conception of race, is that how the Nazis understood the Jews. And that's clearly not true. Nazis took a look at Jews and didn't see Aryan; They didn't see white people. They saw another race. So I think the whole racial classification system leaves much to be desired and should be rigorously questioned in everything we do. I no longer will sign on the white box anymore on a form. I mean, that's partly because, like, ethnically, I'm not necessarily white. According to 23andMe, I'm 50.4% Western Asian. My mom is from Baghdad, Iraq. But also because I just think it's a invidious category to insist that people have to be part of a race and that you can define them. I also think it's ridiculous to see whiteness as always a privilege. I mean, it's not always a privilege. Sometimes it's a privilege. Sometimes people derive privilege from their race or their perceived race. Many times they don't. There are times, by the way, when being Black can be an added benefit. Maybe it's in a more narrow context than it is for white people. But I don't think that, I think that this rigid hierarchy of privilege that people are asserting doesn't really exist. It exists sometimes, and not always. And therefore, we shouldn't use it as if it's always, or suggest that it's always true. And when you ever have something that dogmatic, that rigid, it's always going to lead to a kind of bias and prejudice. And so Jews are being pushed into the structure that is flawed from the get-go and told that they're deriving privilege from it. It goes to Imram X Kendi's work, How to Be an Anti-Racist, where he insists that any disparity among group achievement in economics or education is of the facial evidence of discrimination. So if a group is performing under the mean in any profession or whatever, that means that they've been discriminated against or oppressed. Mm. But that also means that any group that's operating above the mean is complicit in oppression or the oppressor themselves. And that puts Jews, Asians, even Nigerians, by the way, which do better than average (laughs) on many, many categories, among the wealthiest ethnic groups in the United States, that puts all of us at risk. So I think that's a very flawed framework, and I think it's one of the things that's fomenting anti-Semitism on the left.
0: Are you familiar with the concept of whiteness as a property? I have heard that before, but maybe you could fill me in on it. Yeah, I mean, as I understand it, and, and you know, again, I'm still kind of learning this, it, it has to do with whiteness isn't really about how you appear, but it's about, like I guess you could say, European, colonialist, capitalist mindset or worldview or dominant hegem, hegemony, I, I guess might be it. Yeah. I actually heard, I didn't hear that phrase in this way, but I had somebody explain to me, you know, like white supremacy meant or something yes. on like a Facebook chat. And this is a pretty intelligent person. And he wrote this paragraph. I, don't, I mean, it was about two years ago that I remember mm-hmm. arguing with him about this. And I was just like, why are we calling it whiteness? Because if it has nothing to do with race or skin color, then why is it called whiteness? Because to me, that just seems like an advantage in the direction of divisiveness. Rather than like helpfulness. Like you could say, just for the sake of argument, if there is such a thing as oppressor and oppress, and that's like the majority way we can look at the world, why are we calling it white versus non white? Why aren't we calling right. it something a little bit more technically accurate? I think that's sort of how people get away with saying people like John McWhorter or someone like yourself are white or engaging in white supremacy because you're now, your skin color doesn't reflect the ideology you're supposed to have, it reflects right. the white hege- hegemony hegemony, however you're supposed to pronounce that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's exactly how it's often used. And it's amazing, it's almost a permission structure for demonizing white people. Right, yes, yes. It's very vilifying, and even that is problematic to me. Like, I think it's wrong to demonize white people, but it's remarkable how similar the rhetoric of whiteness is to sort of traditional anti-Semitic tropes. I mean, if you substituted the so language that they use to demonize whiteness, you could, and put Jew instead of white, it would sound almost like regular anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. it breeds that kind of bias and, and hatred. A teacher from a school district shared with me a slide recently, and it was a picture of the neo-Nazi protesters in Charlottesville walking around with their tiki mm-hmm. torches. Yeah. And it said, this is probably how you think of white supremacy. But the point of the slide was you are implicated in this as a white person. In other words, this is not something separate from you. Even if you don't like it, this is who you are. And I thought that was very ugly. And it's an effort to make people feel guilty about something that they roundly reject. And by the way, that's being inculcated as pedagogy in teachers who are then teaching it to our kids. So I think that's very problematic. I'm surprised there has not even been more backlash than there has been against this kind of pedagogy.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. You just like literally led into the next question I had on my list here, which is this whole idea of critical theory or critical race theory being taught in K-12 schools. I don't even understand why there's a debate over this, because it seems that when you look at the curriculum, right, no one's teaching actual critical race theory. Like no one's assigning fifth graders, Kimberly Crenshaw, Right. And so they can sort of get, or Angela Davis, they can sort of get away with the fact that like, well, well, no, we're not teaching it. But when you deal with pedagogy, it's like kind of clear as
1: day in my mind. I don't know. Sure. Is there
0: Why is there debate over this at all?
1: Yeah, so critical race theory, you know, as people will point out, it's mostly something taught in law schools and holds that there are systemic factors in American life. And that just because you went through a civil rights era and changed the law, doesn't mean you've encouraged the country of racism. Right, yeah. And, that theory, and it can be a theory, and our thoughtful people will teach it as a theory and not as some, some axiom, grand axiom that everybody must believe at all times, that theory has been turned into an ideology and it's been simplified in some ways and it's become part and parcel of the way we think about diversity in this country. So DEI tends to race some of the core foundations of critical race theory, as does anti-racism and the like. And so what has its origins as a theory has become demagogic in a way and dogmatic. And I think that that's really what we're dealing with. Jonathan Haidt, the great social psychologist, likes to say that critical race theory is cuckoo. And he doesn't mean crazy. I don't mean crazy, he says. I mean that it's like the cuckoo bird that takes over another bird's nest and kicks out all its eggs. It doesn't tend to want to entertain alternative ideas. And when you have a theory that doesn't want to entertain alternative ideas when it insists on its own monopoly of the truth, it's not really a theory anymore. And so I think that's what we're facing in education spaces. I mean, people come in with ideas that the vast majority of people reject and claim them as if they're completely true and treat you as a heretic or as a racist or as somebody who's operating out of privilege if you merely challenge those ideas. And so I think that that's what's happening in school systems around the United States. And I've seen it in my own kids' school.
0: Yeah. For you Yeah. Hi, this is Gregory Baus. And this is Carrie Baldwin. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out the other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as the Reformed Libertarians podcast, hosted by me and Carrie. We educate and inspire listeners to embrace and promote libertarianism as grounded in the Reformed faith. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to offering a variety of content you love, like what you're hearing in this very episode. So now back to the show, and then be sure to check out reformedlibertarians.com. You've worked a lot in Jewish advocacy groups. You mentioned a handful of organizations, and now you're with the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. A lot of the stories that you tell have to do with inter-organizational sort of, I don't want to say the word takeover, but. On one level, it's people being disruptive in a sense that like it halts progress in your internal meetings and things like that. Talk a little bit about that phenomenon because that is also happening like all over. It's not not simply happening in your experiences.
1: Yeah. My experience is a great case study for what's happening everywhere. So I use, I talk about the Jewish community, but if you want to know what happened at the ACLU, you can read my book and you'll hear really what happened everywhere. You'll hear what happened in American Jewish organizations, but it's clearly what's happening in other organizations as well that have been sort of captured. And it's funny, whenever I say the word, an institution is captured, you know, I always find myself wincing away my own words because it sounds so conspiratorial, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, really. <laughs> but there's no other way to describe what's actually happened. What tends to happen is, you know, sort of spineless institutional leaders are confronted from with young staff people who want change, and they push and they push and they make claims of racism or they say that we're doing things wrong, and they quickly fold. Also, what happens is they bring in DEI consultants and the like into the organization, and the DEI consultants tell them exactly what they have to think about these issues. A controversy will come up, like George Floyd. And there'll be tremendous pressure to sort of read from the same song sheet. So you're not allowed to use any other language. And you're asked to defer to people, marginalized groups. These are carefully curated voices from, let's say, the Black community or people of color. Not everybody in those communities, by any stretch, believes in this stuff. But you're told that those are the authentic voices and Mm -hmm. you have to defer to those voices. And so institutions, in a way, sign on the proverbial dotted line of deference. Some people have called this identitarian deference. And it's very hard to get out of that. So in the wake of George Floyd, if you brought in a DEI consultant, because we're going to actually deal with this racial reckoning, and that DEI consultant says, well, for you to be a good organization, a thoughtful organization, a diverse, inclusive organization, you have to believe X, Y, and Z about white supremacy culture, let's say. Yeah, then yeah. all of a sudden, and you've said, okay, well, I'm not really qualified to articulate an independent position because I'm white. Then now you've deferred to somebody else to make all your decisions to tell you how to think. And you can't really easily weasel out of that once you've signed up for it. And I think that's where we're at. We're stuck there. And many institutions now yeah. have sort of signed on the dotted line. Yeah. I mean, you even tell the story.
0: I think this was really telling that there was a statement I think you helped write that was sort of in support of racial justice or whatever. And some people rejected it because it wasn't written by Jewish people of color. Like there was too few people involved
1: in it. Yeah. And it was happening everywhere. It was happening everywhere. It was this idea that you really don't have a voice in this because you benefit from whiteness. So you should bring in people from who are, Black juice, so some in some cases might have already been part of an organization, which is great, wonderful, but in many cases we're not. So, therefore, for you to be qualified to speak about it, you have to bring in these voices. And that's where it's just gotten worse from there. Yeah. Yeah. You have something called the McWhorter test. What is that? Yeah. By the way, I was at a conference in England that John McWhorter was at as well, just like two weeks ago. And I gave him my book, and you know, he knew of the book, and I said, I have something in here called the McWhorter test. So, John McWhorter is the great linguist from That's Columbia great. University. He wrote a book called Woke Racism. And my book, of course, is Woke Antisemitism. And in my book, I talk about a McWhorter test, which is that I can tell if an organization is open to multiple points of view, if it would be willing to have John McWhorter speak. In other mm-hmm. words, if it's only willing to have carefully curated minority or marginalized voices speak, then it's not really an intellectually open organization. It's a closed organization. So my own organization at that time, it was the Jewish Council of Public Affairs. I didn't feel like I could have these heterodox black voices platformed because I would have been called a racist by some of the people that I worked with, or some of the people that were loosely affiliated with my organization. And I noted that somebody that I knew, her name was Bon, she was the editorial editor of the Forum, which is a Jewish publication. I had actually interviewed a lot of these Black heterodox thinkers about what was going on and wrote several articles about it and really faced an onslaught of criticism to the point where she had to leave the publication and eventually ended up in Newsweek and writing the book about woke media. And so from that, I understood from what she was going, and she was a journalist, so she should have more latitude than I would as an advocacy director. I realized that I couldn't entertain alternative views. So is it any wonder that people think that all Black people have the same view on all these issues when they don't? I always like to cite a Pew survey that showed that 62% of Black Americans do not support affirmative action in higher education. Now, whether one supports affirmative action in higher education is another matter, but that speaks volumes of the level of yeah. diversity within the Black community. It's also a
0: surprising statistic for people who think that that's not really the case. Like, it's a very... Yeah.
1: That's a pretty high number. It is a high number, and it should be shocking. And it tells you that Black people tend not to be very progressive. They might vote Democratic, but they tend to have conservative cultural values in many cases. Yeah. And so I think we've been sold a bill of goods about what, quote unquote, what Black people think Mm -hmm. that essentializes Black voices. And that's what I think John McWhorter would call woke racism.
0: Yeah. Well, and... You know one good thing about John mcWhorter is that he is seemingly in with <laughs> the mainstream media a little bit more than a lot of people. and so he's actually had his book you know he was interviewed about his book a couple of years ago on the view. So it gets a little bit more mainstream press. but that you know, as you attribute in your book, that isn't really the case. And so it appears as though if you were just to simply look at where everybody's being interviewed, all of these dissident voices seem to show up only on conservative-friendly places. Yeah. But there's a reason for that.
1: Yeah, it's very hard because there are people like me who, like, I'd rather talk to the mainstream media and not always resort to getting my views out through conservative media. But the mainstream media are afraid of their own shadows. Some of them agree with me privately, but they're just not willing to take on their own organizations or their own media companies or their own staff people or journalists. And so they... Stay away and then you say, okay, well, I have to get my views out somehow. So you do take the interview with a conservative press and then they knock you for taking the interview with a conservative press. That's something you'll hear. Anybody who does what I do and push back against the ideology, that's what they'll tell you. And what it does is it allows them to then say, see, you really are just a right-wing freak. And of course, (laughs) if you don't take that interview, you'll never get your views out to the public in any way.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, that's why they can like get away with calling James Lindsay like a darling of the right-wing you know, or the alt-right or whatever. It's like, but he doesn't even hold those views. He's just against wokeism. So there's a phrase, I guess, in the former Soviet Union called double think. And you describe that. And I think a lot of people who don't agree with the woke agenda, even if they believe in some of the things that are like, oh, okay, well, yeah, there's racism here, and I can we can identify it and try to account for it and pursue mm-hmm. racial justice or whatever, they're not gonna speak up and they're afraid. No. What do you afraid. have to say to people who are in situations like that?
1: Yeah, well, I think the main way that this ideology loses ground is when people who aren't double thinkers, who are in the proverbial closet in their institutions, take some risks. Now, it's a easier for some people to take risks than others, I grant you, but it's not going to get you killed. I note that a group of Iranian girl teenagers in a school Shouted down a party official. They could be arrested for that. Mm. And so that's real courage. The Iranian soccer players during the World Cup who refused to mouth the words of their own national anthem, that's real courage. Telling your boss that you would not like to go to the DEI training or that you think that this DEI process is flawed is not that courageous. I hope you'll do it, but let's not overstate the risks to our own well-being. No one is going to disappear you. And so I think we've got to help people along there. And just as there's this phenomenon called a spiral of silence, there also can be spirals of courage. Every courageous act makes it easier for the next person to show some courage because you've chipped away at the ideological obstacle that was holding you back. So I'm trying, and others as well, to get more and more people to act with some courage and authenticity and to stop being so afraid that they're going to be ostracized. Some people really have almost no career consequences. They can absolutely speak out and just don't because they don't want to be judged by their friends. So I hmm. think we can push them along a little bit and say, take some risks and some are. Do you see that as a little bit of a silver lining, knowing that
0: this is a phenomenon that people are afraid because that's who you can reach?
1: Yeah. So if you think about your target audiences, people say, well, you're, you've got to convince these woke people that they're wrong. But no, actually not. <laughs> I'm not even trying to. I'm That's not a even losing trying battle. Right. I'm not even trying to convince the people who are confused about it that much. They're not my primary target audience. Mm, my primary target audience are the people who already agree with me. So, this is actually an interesting target audience. How do you get people who already agree with you to speak up? It's a different ask. Mm. Because the vast majority of people agree that this is problematic. Americans are saying in polls that they feel that they're so censoring. At record rates. There's more self censorship in America now than there was during the Mark Carthy idea in America. So people clearly don't like this. They feel like they're holding back, they're walking on eggshells. So to me, if we get a lot of those people to speak out and say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to go along with this. And sometimes there's strength in numbers. Like I call it the awkward dance. If you're in an organization and you're not sure if there's others who agree with you, you can sort of approach people and start by slowly and saying, you know, I have some concerns about this. Don't come out loud and find out if they have concerns. And before you know it, you've done this awkward dance where you realize you actually agree on everything. You know, and yeah, they yeah. think that the current situation is as batshit crazy as you do. And then you have an ally and do that a few more times and you might have four or five allies. And that's how you start making change.
0: Yeah. Well, and you know, to give benefit of the doubt to some of the leadership in organizations, if they're looking on, you know, let's say they're like, you know what, our company needs to think about this. What are they going to find? They're going to find mostly anti-racist. And by that, I mean, in sort of, you know, trademarks language at this point, an anti-racist way of thinking about DEI rather than a more liberal view of understanding racism and injustice. And so to some extent, your boss might just be going along.
1: Yeah, I think your boss is probably going along. Some people genuinely don't have an opinion about anything. I mean, they're not people who pay close attention to these issues. There are people who I know who are like, what's the big deal? And I'll say, well, it's a big deal because I don't agree with this. I think it's disastrous for society. Mm. Their minds don't operate on that level of abstraction, so they're not really keyed into it. So yeah, if, if everybody's saying I should train my employees in this, in that your view on social dynamics and racism is really just a competency and not a perspective well I'll teach everybody to have that competency myself included so i think that's probably even the majority of the people who push this in their organizations they just they don't particularly think about these issues a lot and they're willing to go along with whatever comes their way as long as it's good for their career and if you start pushing back against them they have no idea what you're talking about But there's a lot of other people who are like, this is really bullshit. Though they won't say it during the DEI seminar, but they'll say it to one or two friends. They'll say it to me in a Facebook post like, hey, don't tell anybody, but I think what you're doing is spot on. That's an everyday phenomenon for somebody like me who's so explicitly out of the closet. Yeah.
0: Talk about your rebuilding the center strategy. I found that interesting in that I am always on the lookout for people who have a strategy for moving away from this craziness.
1: Yeah, so one of the key strategies for me is that there are people that are in the closet and there are people who, in each you know ethnic community, for example, that are not buying in. There are Asian-American groups, for example, and Asian-American individuals who don't like this at all for the same reasons that I don't like it. There are Black Americans who don't want their kids to be taught that the system is rigged against them. There are... Nigerian Americans who don't like it. And these are people who are not I, they're not right-wing ideologues either. They're people who don't like extremism, whether it comes from the far right or comes from the far left. There are a lot of immigrants in this country who don't want to feel like that the country they fled to sounds like the country they fled from. Mm. And so they naturally and viscerally oppose the ideology. And so these are to me are our new friends. The people who did this we call those San Francisco school board members who wanted to rename every school instead of actually deal with education. Those are ethnic leaders, and those are our new friends. So I think we have the opportunity to fashion a new coalition in American life and American politics that is center left to center right. These are people who might have disagreed on things before liberalism became the issue. In other words, there are people on my right flank who I probably would have argued a lot with five or six years ago about issues, but I no longer argue with because they agree with me fundamentally that extreme right-wingism is bad and extreme left-wingism is bad. And we're not arguing about those things anymore. We're just strategizing about how to overcome the current ideological scourge in this country and how we get back to a point of respecting each other and engaging in discourse, respectful discourse. And I also think we need to fashion a common narrative, too, like, I like to call it patriotic pluralism. And that is that the right tends to be patriotic, but not very pluralistic. And the left tends to be pluralistic, but not very patriotic. And mm-hmm. I think we need, a, we need an, a common American narrative, like for many come one, e pluribus, for many come one. We need that. We need that American ideal to be a country that can be effective, that can solve problems, that has a sense of self. And I think we're losing that amid the polarization coming from both ends of the political spectrum. I mean, so that's what the rebuild the center strategy is. It's not a center that says, okay, you believe X, Y, and Z, so therefore you're part of the center. It's a center that says, I stand for liberal ideals. I stand for openness. I stand for the ability to have conversations with people I disagree with. So you're building the platform not around a particular set of issues per se, but around Mm -hmm. the fundamental operating system of American society.
0: Got it. So where can people find woke anti-Semitism?
1: You can find it on Amazon and other online booksellers. So,
0: All right. Tell us, where else can we find you online if people want to look you up and look at some of your work and yeah.
1: So Jewish Institute for Liberal Values is jilv.org. And we have a lot of resources on there and they can find it that way. They can find me by email at david at J-I-L-V.org. Happy to converse. And they can find me on Twitter at david L. Bernstein as well. So, yeah, I'm happy to be engaged in conversations. I'm trying to go beyond just what we do in the Jewish community to help build this new strategy, this collective strategy, working with other ethnic communities and other groups that are equally concerned about the state of affairs in America today.
0: Well, that's great. Well, David, I really appreciate you joining us and to have this conversation. And hopefully we'll get to chat in the future.
1: Thanks a million. Appreciate being on.